Welcome to the Privateer Podcast, an educational and informational podcast brought to you by the folks at Privateer Rum. I'm Maggie Campbell, and I'm the president and head distiller at Privateer. And today I'm going to be chatting briefly with Kate Perry, just for a quick 10 minutes, about when in rum. And then we're going to follow that up with a longer discussion with Chris from the Green Zone. So I'm very excited for this. Uh, We could talk forever, but we cover a lot about Eastern Mediterranean cuisine, Middle Eastern cocktail flavors, culture, the beauty of white rum, and all you would ever want to know about Iraq service. So thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Kate. Let's do it. Hey, Kate. Thank you so much for dropping in. I know you've joined us previously and we've talked a little bit about when in rum, but finally it's here uh, today, the day the podcast will be released. Uh, Monday is the day it goes on pre-sale and then it comes out August 7th. And I'm so excited. Uh, I've been sending you all sorts of images of the label and all the stuff we're putting together in the technical data sheet. And it's just been really, really fun to see it finally coming to life. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been like, I've been really excited about this in a kind of like funny way because it came about just so like kind of spontaneously and it felt like very like silly. And now it's like, wait, no, this is a real thing that's happening. Um, So I feel like (laughs) I haven't quite like caught up to that yet in my head. Um, But your little messages that I love so much are definitely like, oh wait, this is a real thing. And not just like hanging out at the distillery with Maggie. (laughs) No, absolutely the same. It's like, oh, this will be a cute thing. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a product and we're launching it. Like that's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. You know, I know that like you and I talk so much about like how amazing it is and how like difficult and how much work there is behind like getting a bottle into somebody's hand. Like when it gets into your hand, like that's incredible. Like there's so (laughs) much thought and intention and paperwork and so much that goes behind everything. So it's, it's very, um, it's very cool, and I love that this also happened in such a short time frame. Um, I I was so excited to come and spend a little bit of time with you guys in Ipswich, and you all were really like also like some of the last people that like friends that I've seen before the world kind of turned upside down. So it also like brings back so many good memories of just hanging out with you and Pete and your team, um, and then yeah. like it just it happened so so quickly and then everything changed. So I really like, just really love this bottle because it brings back good memories of times when we could all be together. Um, and that was just such a fun day to come spend with you guys and hang out the distillery and so great. So great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think you are probably the last person other than my husband I've hugged. Like, Oh God! You're, you're the last person I touched, and that was March like 14th. I think we yeah. dropped you off at the train station, and it was like yeah. things were getting we had, really surreal, really fast. Yeah, we had that super eerie brunch where, like, 
that restaurant is amazing. There's usually a line down the door and we walked in, we're the only people in there. And it was so surreal and so like twilight zone-y. And then you guys dropped me off at the state train station and I, I went off to Africa where I apparently was living for two months. Doesn't that feel and, like years ago? But also oh my gosh, it's so week? funny. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. Um, but I'm really glad that we um, got to spend that time together and that we have this really fun project that came out of it so unexpectedly. Yeah, I feel like it's, you know, uh, I definitely know the vast majority of even a lot of rum people have never heard of privateer, but I also feel like it's kind of this cool special moment where like Velier is like this incredible source of authentic rum here in the U.S. as we're finally able to access some of these great rums of the world. And then like over here, as far as like continental U.S., like trying to bring rum back and we're fortunate privateers gotten to be a part of that and um, you know it's kind of this nice moment in our own little like rum family us history of like oh yeah this is this was a time where you know rum is reviving yet we're all still like really tight it's still a really small yeah. business like authentic rum totally. in, in this market is still tiny and we're all really close we're all such good friends um, and yeah, we just get to do fun stuff and hang out and travel with each other, or at least we used to. Uh, and it kind of <laughs> kind of <laughs> captured that moment, yeah. So our cat yeah. spaghetti has moved into your guest room, like it's his room now. So you're gonna. Have That's to, fine. Like, we can share. Yeah, I, you'll have to fight him like for the octopus pillow. We have oh, like, no. I mean, that, that's a line drawn. <laughs> I remember you going into that room and being like, this is the cutest pillow I've ever seen. Um, yes. It's spaghetti's now, but you guys can fight. Also, I think. Okay, that's fine. He's, he's pretty dainty. <laughs> we call him little dainty man because he just oh, he's man. so dainty. But man. the rum, uh, very much on a whim and for fun. We talked a little bit about it on our last episode, but yeah. So after the rum is made, right? Like not only are we making all these decisions about flavor and proof and what we want to call it and how we're going to rest it and when we're going to bottle it, we're also designing the label, getting the label approved by the federal government, <laughs> filing all the paperwork for it. And then of course, like, like the whole part of the business that I think we don't talk about a lot, the like the branding and the marketing, which we're not a you know, every privateer design and branding, like that's us. We don't have like a branding firm, which I think is good because it makes sure everything's really authentic and in-house. And I know that like, obviously your boss has like a massive vision for like with his design and his aesthetic and what he wants things to look like in the language on the bottle. And we all do it ourselves um, from your producers or in partner with Velier. Uh, and even our stuff alone. So I think that's like, that is a whole part of the business that is very expensive and very difficult and, you know, was something we do on our own. And so all this weekend I was shooting you images of like what we're going to put online and, you know, how we're going to sell it and like the information we're going to give people. And yeah, it's all handmade guys. <laughs> yeah. I think that like people don't really realize that. Um, it's really, it's really crazy when you, you know, you get this bottle in your hand and you're just like, Oh, like, look at this. And like, 
I was so um, surprised to learn that like, I mean, you have like a handwriting person, right? Like you have someone who <laughs> literally hand writes those labels um, that are then sent to the printer. And oh my gosh, that person has the most beautiful handwriting ever. Jenna, I'm, yeah. You oh my God. Her on our Instagram. I'll link her uh, when we do the show because uh, she does an amazing job. So great. Um, yeah, just, you know, so many small details and so many decisions that go into actually getting a bottle on the shelf and into our hands and into our glasses. So uh, for us to share with, um, it's, it's just really, really cool and really, really special and so much work. So by the time that, you know, I know that we joke about this a lot, like by the time it actually like hits the, hits the shelf, hits the thing, like we're on to like the next thing. It's been, it's been so much work of getting this onto there that by the time it hits, it's like, okay, what's next? <laughs> well, we have to be otherwise, you know, like, I think that's one of the weird things about spirits is like everything you're working on is for the future and what is about to come to fruition is an object of the past. And you're on five different timelines all at once because if we didn't do that, you'd get one product a year. So it's sort of yeah. like we start down the path with something. I mean, and especially like on the production side, that's years ahead of time where we start down the path on something. And then you're just pulling the threads together over time until that last little thread is tied up all neat. And you're just like, oh my God. And yeah, with those labels, like we send Jenna a blank label we communicate to her what we'd like it to say. And she then handwrites different versions. Like, do you like this W or do you prefer this W? Which W <laughs> for when in rum do you want? And she sends us different oh images gosh. of different ones. And, so then, and then she mails them back to us. So when you're talking about like a timeline for this, this isn't like pop in your font and hit print people. And then it goes to our printers who are like, they use like the die cuts, like the ink. Like imagine the big circular wheel that stamps like, like that stuff. They have to cut these metal plates to print, to pick up the ink and print it on the paper. And like, we have to die strike the paper guys. And yeah, uh, it's like such it's a labor of love. And that's just like the labels. Yeah. All right. So I think one of the things I also love about when in rum is that it is a white rum, you know, whether you call it white rum, silver rum, what do you call unaged rums? Just unaged rum? I just call it unaged rum. Um, there's, there's just like a lot of complexity about what white rum is and white rum means. And it's a little bit, you know, is it a white rum that's unaged? Was it aged in charcoal filtered? Um, so I don't really know. <laughs> I, I, just, I just like to call it the thing that it is if I'm talking about unaged rum. Um, Cause I don't, I don't really know. Um. I, I, know in, I know like in Barbados, they're like, Oh, there's white rum or brown rum, like aged rum or white. And then in other places, like you said, it means specific things. It's a complicated, it's a complicated thing, but uh, so. yeah, there's, there's definitely some nuance there. Um, and I think that it's, you know, maybe a little bit misunderstood and also like it has this connotation that like, it's, it's the stuff that you mix with Coke. Right. And I think that there's so much wonderful, wonderful unaged rum that has so much flavor to it. So I think it's really good to sort of 
differentiate it as its own thing and something that you can sip on on its own or something that makes, you know, a lovely um, cocktail. But I don't really like the notion that like white rum is made for cocktails kind of what like white rum feels like to me um especially where, here like, in the u.s where coca-cola and bacardi is like a whole thing obviously yeah, they drink that yeah. everywhere but like white rum in jamaica would not necessarily mean that but it would mean something else <laughs> totally and i mean you know that i work a lot with clarhan which is beautiful full flavored like so much going on there and i love to sip that unaged i love to Sip, um, you know, rum agricole from Martinique um, on its own unaged. I love to sip my funky Jamaican friends unaged. So I really love unaged rum and I love to drink it on its own um, or in the occasional cocktail. But, you know, give me a rum that tastes like rum. Um, that's what I love and that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, exactly. And I think when we, so I think, is that the first, so I sent Kate a photo of when in rum or you saw it uh is that no, the first you photo you've seen <laughs> yeah you posted it and I was on another call and like my heart stopped because it was like Maggie Campbell tagged you in a post I was like uh-oh what happened and I looked and I was like oh my god it's of this bottle and I'm like screaming on the inside right now and trying to remain professional and like not freak out um but yeah that's the first time that I've just saw seen the label which was like two minutes ago um you've shared like a lot of the sort of process to get there um which has been really cool to be a part of and I love that you've been so um you know willing to uh co-create in that space and ask me questions and have me confirm things. It's been really, really fun to be a part of that process. And you said something the other day that I just thought was like the coolest thing where um, I'd love if you could kind of share your side of this, where you said that you tasted it and you knew that one of your distillers didn't make it um, by themselves and that there was something else going on and that your rum doesn't sort of have those notes that you found, which I just thought was like such a cool thing. Um, yeah, that is totally a thing that happens at the distillery. I know that you kind of were like, really? And then when you came to the distillery, you were like, oh, okay, yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes, really. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, really. I can taste almost any cask and tell you exactly, you know, did Dylan distill it? Did Pete distill it? Did I distill it? Or is it like a combination of Maggie and Dylan? Or is, did Pete distill one element of this barrel? Uh, and yeah, and we can kind of get a sense of who did what, because although, you know, we are all trained to the house style, we have our little quirks and subtleties where I know that Pete's going to be subtly more cautious on one part of the run where Dylan's actually really going to push it (laughs) really as far as he can. Uh, and I'm probably going to roll it back about like 20% from where Dylan is just because like, that's where we feel our center and we feel confident and maybe to the outside observer they would taste them all and they would taste all the same but they would tell something like I I believe people can actually sense something even if they can't name it but for me I can tell you pretty much exactly what that is so when you were there like tasting this bottle and it's funny because I had it as new make uh, which is not nearly as expressive as it is once it's rested so I had it as new make and then they dropped off proof trials at my house. So I tried it at different proofs and talked that over with you, what proof we should have it at. 
Uh, and you were right. Like your gut just said 63 and it's totally spot on there. Um, so obviously when you're doing a proofing trial, you've just mixed spirit with water. So it's a little more agitated than it would be. So today I picked up my flask that's been resting and I was like, oh my God, like it's just so, it's really densely packed on flavor. It's got really great energy, but yes, it has this. And I love that the flavor is soursop because it reminds me <laughs> of our time together at Christmas in Barbados. <laughs> when it was Pete who had never had soursop before, right? Right, and we got right. him some, and he was like, we tried soursop with Pete for the first time. That was so fun. I was like, it's like if you take a kiwi and cross it with a star fruit, but it tastes like its own thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I had it, and it's, it's got a real tanginess to it, a freshness. Um, that's really good. And it is, it's like this, this tangy green tropical fruit and like a melange of green tropical fruits, uh, if you will. And, you know, it was really great sitting down with my team and pricing this rum out because we like, we want it to be like fun. And that is something you and I believe. We both believe that unaged rums can be excellent and they can be really fine and really filled with nuance and really beautiful but we also kind of believe that rum should be like pretty fun and approachable and especially with like the height of summer coming on so this bottle is only $35 I don't know if you knew that no that's awesome <laughs> I love that yeah that's great and the label cool. just says after we I know you and I discussed this when we were developing the label, but it just says overproof rum. It doesn't say cool. white rum, unaged rum. So it's just, it is rum and it is overproof and the rest uh -huh. is in the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> the rest you can pour into your glass and find out more. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time to chit chat again now that it's out oh, it's, and ready. I'm so happy. And you know, I think back to that day that we got to spend together at Privateer um, so often and so fondly. And I think that like the, the thing that just really impressed me most because I've been, I've been to Privateer before and I've been there with you and you've been so gracious with your time to, you know, show me around and show me um, kind of all the parts of the distillery and what's happening where. And you've just been so um, generous with information and specific knowledge. And I so appreciate that. But being there um, on this day, you know, you, you were doing your own thing. And I got to shadow distill with your husband, Pete, which was so much fun. I just have so much respect and admiration for him. Um, and then just like, I got to spend a little bit of time with kind of a lot of different sides of your team um, and kind of felt like felt like just that kind of dynamic energy of everybody doing their thing but being in community together um, and getting to you know talk to Andrew Cabot and getting to talk to Angelica who was doing her own thing and like all of the different aspects felt so cohesive but felt like such just cool um, kind of 
independent expressions of your team and to sort of like feel that dynamic energy. I think about that kind of quite a bit. Like everyone is skilled in their kind of own little sector, but like the community vibe that you've built there all together is just like really, really special. And I think that a lot of people see privateer and think Maggie Campbell, which is so obvious and you do such a great, um, job doing so much, you know, doing, um, doing the, the physical labor and all the emotional labor and all of the, um, kind of marketing and questions and all of this stuff. You're such an incredible figurehead, but you have such a strong team that's right there beside you. Um, and kind of getting to experience that part of it for myself is like kind of the thing that I just really, um, kind of dig on when I think about that day a lot so I really I just really appreciated like everything that was going on and getting to like see all the different aspects and have a really variety um style conversation with so many different people um who are all doing like their own thing together to build this um like to like come together in community to put out this incredible product, but there's so many different aspects of it. And, you know, I, I know that we talked about this a little bit on our podcast too, but also having such a small team of such skilled people means that, you know, like I didn't go there expecting to put out a bottle release that wasn't even anywhere in my mind but before we were even finished distilling like you'd filed the cola for it so <laughs> like the agility of your small team and the ability just to like make quick decisions and be like yes this is the right thing like and follow that kind of intuition and then see where it leads is just like I think that's something that makes you guys really really special and is going to push you so far uh, with just so much um, so much to look forward to because you're so well set up for being able to do really cool stuff and sort of yeah okay I'll stop gushing now I just I just really love you guys (laughs) it's really sweet and it touches my heart and I love that you see that because I do I think you're right I think that's hard to see from the outside but when you come inside like we are really we're a tight team who really loves each other and really trusts each other to like lead for yourself and do your part, but also like working cohesion on like something so much bigger than ourselves and people yeah. have a lot of freedom and then also a really tight knit relationship at the same time. It's kind of this like marriage of opposites. You, you get to like set your own schedule because you know what it is you have to do to like show up for the rest of the team. So it's like you're totally bound to everyone, but also really free at the same time. Totally. Yeah. And I think in that relationship dynamic, like that just allows for so much creativity and flexibility and passion to sort of like arise because it's like you have independence, but you also have so much support and like everybody's striving to create something incredible at the same time that like everybody also gets to be their own individual person and have their own self-expression. So I, yeah, I, I think about that day a lot. And like, that's like the thing that I keep coming back to. I think that impressed me most. Um, well, so yeah, it was really great. So yeah, thank you. I mean, thank you so much for smacking a, a privateer 
um, TM sticky note on <laughs> that. I'm obsessed with privateer sticky notes. <laughs> They're the greatest sticky notes. Posted extreme. They're amazing. <laughs> Industrial so sticky notes. The texture, like when you write yeah. on them, it just feels good. Yeah. This is oh, how much we so care, good. guys, about details. <laughs> I know. Even the sticky notes, you guys. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for letting but, us, like, yeah. take a special day and turn it into something, you know, real and material in the world. So I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And I can't, I can't wait to drink it. I can't wait to to grab a bottle and, um, you know, the, the thing about rum I keep finding is that when you have a sip, you just get so instantly transported to a time with friends where you had that bottle before or a beach in that place. Like rum is just so transportative. So I'm really looking forward to having a sip and feeling like I'm back in Massachusetts with you and Pete and spaghetti. Um. <laughs> <laughs> On the farm. It'll happen again yes, someday. Yes, yes. Watching uh, Jeopardy. <laughs> watching Jeopardy. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> the vintage episodes are amazing. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I love yes. you so much. Stay safe. I love you so much. Thank you, Maggie. All Bye. Right. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Thank you again, Kate, for joining us in for that quick little discussion about when in rum, uh, when in rum and our lot one are going for pre-sale today, um, July 27th, and they'll be released for sale August 6th. So very excited about that project. Very excited about Lot 1. Um, I think some of the romance of Lot 1 is that the art of like the micro blend, right? So if you have a single cask, it's incredibly distinctive and must be perfectly balanced and possess all of those things in proper measure to be bottled as a single bottle, but if you were making um, a blend, you might find one barrel with a really powerful front palette, and then another barrel with a really powerful finish, and then another one with like an incredibly distinctive perfume, and then, you know, a further one to really flesh out and give like power to the mid palette. And you would bring these different barrels together to make this blend that could be a lot more than just the sum of its parts and create balance through that. And once you blend a lot of barrels together, some of that distinctiveness can become a lot more broad um, and a lot less specific. So in a micro blend, when you're using just a few casks, um, you can really kick up not only the uniqueness of a very small selection, but also the power and intensity that you can gain from blending together different elements. So very excited for Lot 1. Um, so proud of our team who helped build this blend, particularly Dylan Turner. Um, I think it's turned out really beautiful. And yeah, just the art of the blend. It's, it's a special one and, and I really enjoy it. So that one is also available. All right, so... Now we're going to get into my talk with Chris. I have wanted to interview Chris for a long time. I think that he offers such a unique and very intelligent perspective in our rum world and in our drinks world. I think that he brings so much insight and thoughtfulness to everything he does and such natural confidence 
um, that's really well integrated and, and it feels really comfortable to be around someone who's that grounded. Um, and yeah, I learn something new every time. It's, it's an experience I find is really rare and I, I couldn't have very often in my life, um, to get the chance to learn from him. So I'm so thankful for him to stop and take his time to share what it is he does over at Green Zone in Washington, D.C., a bit about his life and a bit about his adventures and travels and perspective. So thank you so much, Chris, and we'll roll right into that. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I have been waiting and waiting to ask you to come on. I don't know what it is. I feel really shy asking people. Like, I don't want to feel like a jerk being like, want to be on my podcast. But also, like, there are definitely people I want to, like, have on, and you're one of them. So I knew with reopening the bar in the midst of everything, I didn't want to hassle you. But I was so excited when you said you wanted to come on. So thank you. Thank you, Maggie. It's a real honor. I was actually waiting uh, for you to ask. I was going to ask you if I could be on, but I didn't want to be too presumptuous. No, I'm, I'm telling everyone out there right now, please ask. Because I like, I'm not, I just don't even think about it. I, I think about like what my dreams would be, but I also feel like I don't want to intrude on people. So ask yeah. away. I'm so happy. I was so glad that you were. No, the, the best things in life come if you, I just ask nicely, I find. <laughs> I love that. Um, would you mind, for folks who might not be familiar with you uh, or your work, would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Absolutely. My name is Chris Hassan Franca. I'm the owner of The Green Zone in Washington, D.C. And The Green Zone is a cocktail bar that specializes in the Middle East. So what I mean by that is that every cocktail, every one of our original cocktails has some flavor or component linking it back to the Middle East, um, whether it's the ingredients in it, whether it's the name, whether it's whatever the inspiration was, um, as well as all our food is pretty traditional um, Lebanese or Iraqi food. My own background is that on my mother's side, I am uh, Iraqi, but um, her family has been living in Lebanon for the on and off for the last few decades. So there's also a lot of Lebanese influence. And when I grew up, um, I grew up uh, quite close to my grandparents because they lived just like a mile down the road. And so I had my mom and her Iraqi parents with me at all times. And I basically grew up sort of bilingual, certainly exposed to lots of Arabic, and definitely exposed to all the food that they would cook. Um, and that sort of came from there. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I see you post pictures of the food or the drinks, like, I find them incredibly exciting. Um, the flavors look amazing. And I feel like anyone who has ever been to your bar, like it is either, oh, I've not been there or, oh my God, it is like nothing else I've ever had before in my life. I can't even tell you what it's like. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the whole idea for the so-called Middle Eastern cocktails, as I call them, is that I was <clears throat> lying in bed one night uh, wondering it started that I was lying in bed one night at like 2 a.m. unable to sleep thinking why do people drink you know white Russians and black Russians when they're made with such crappy ingredients and how come nobody ever made a drink that tasted like Turkish coffee and everything was sort of born out of that so the next day I'm like okay how can I make a Turkish coffee cocktail that actually tastes good yeah. um, so everything was born out of that but also it was like 
okay, everybody has done, you know, if you have a Japanese restaurant, you have Japanese cocktails with sake and God knows what. And if you have Chinese, same thing. And, you know, God knows there's all kinds of um, Latin style cocktails, which may not even be original like Cuban or Peruvian cocktails. They're just like, oh, we have all this alcohol and all these cool flavors in Latin America. Let's make cocktails with them. Nobody had ever done that, to my knowledge, for the Middle East. Um, so I wanted to show, I wanted to put all these flavors that I grew up with and had experienced on my travels there into cocktails. Um, so we started as a pop-up four years ago and as a brick and mortar bar two years ago. Yeah. And, and I do think there are a lot of misconceptions about cocktails, cocktail cultures, spirits all throughout, um, the Middle East. I know a lot of my like industry friends, et cetera, like they have incredible vibrant bar scenes. And of course, like there's a variety of places. Middle East is a very large place. Um, with a lot of different cultures, but I think that there's sort of a broad lack of awareness of, of those types of spirits. I know you and I have talked about the very disappointing lack of books about the spirits from that part of the world. Cause they're so, they're so huge globally. Like they're not as well known here, but globally they're very significant. Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, the Arabic word, which is the in the Middle East is the, you know, indigenously produced spirit flavored, grape spirit flavored with aniseed has made its way all the way east to, you know, Nepal and Mongolia and Indonesia and, you know, to the Balkans, you know, you have Rakhya, Rakhya, Batavia Arak, Rakshi in in Nepal, Irag or or Arki in, in Mongolia. And all these words come from this Arabic word. Yeah. And and also, of course, obviously, is the the cradle of distillation, the alchemists, and then, um, as you said, that culture has been greatly preserved in different pockets. And then, yeah. part of like my studies as a distiller is learning all about how a lot of that know-how was brought across uh, North Africa as mm-hmm. part of the trade routes, and how um, you know women in Africa kept a lot of the distillation technology and science alive um, for what we now know as modern distillation throughout more of the Western world. Um, And yeah, like, and then of course, like, then you get into whole different styles of types of distillation that you see throughout Africa showing up in the Lincoln County process of whiskey or part of, uh, yeah, like Spanish style rums that are charcoal filtered. That was like a water purification technique in Africa. Uh, that women use so and then of course that technology and it came from sort of this eastern mediterranean existence and um you know i i'm very i have another life in the world of apples uh and of course apples coming from that cradle as well uh explaining to people that apples are not from new england and that they're actually middle eastern is always fascinating (laughs) yeah but yeah go ahead all of that history, there's really only, traditionally, there's really only areg that's produced. Um, I don't know why. Uh, some some wineries distill their own brandy, but I think that's more of a European influence. Yeah. Um, and it's not like, you know, in a place like Lebanon, you know, obviously there's the whole Muslim prohibition on alcohol, which is also debated whether it's a prohibition or a discouragement, but we're not going to get into that. Um, you know, countries like Lebanon, which are roughly half Christian, have a thriving <laughs> distilling and winemaking scene. Turkey, which is 
at least for now on the books, a secular state has a thriving wine and distilling and brewing scene. Um, you know, there's such amazing fruit over there. Like the best fruit I've ever had has been in Lebanon and Turkey. And it's like, how come nobody's distilling more of this? I just really wonder why. Yeah, no, I've, I dream. But but what it means for the cocktails (laughs) that I make is that unless there's arag in the cocktail or like an Armenian brandy in the cocktail, all of the flavors, all of the the, the parts of the cocktail that related to the Middle East are in the non-alcoholic components. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, you know the, that part of the world has, because of Islam, has such an amazing tradition of non-alcoholic drinks. You know, if you want non-alcoholic cocktails, the best place to be is the Middle East. Oh, yeah. Actually, uh, just yesterday, my husband, he did the thing where you super, super boil the gunpowder green tea and do the the dried mint infusion and then the fresh mint infusion and then the honey syrup to make like a very traditional style um, you know, Moroccan, which is adjacent to the area, uh, style tea. And it's, it's funny just like, because in, in Morocco, it's frequently referred to by Moroccans who are trying to be funny as Moroccan whiskey. <laughs> um, and one of my friends was a diplomat in Morocco. And when he asked him about that, he's like, yes, we drink it as much as you drink whiskey. And he was like, if we like, drink as much whiskey as you drink mint tea, we'd all be dead. <laughs> We'd all be dead and we would not have nearly as good of immunity because they put all yeah. the delicious local honeys into it, which is yeah. beekeeping throughout that entire part of the world. Is Oh, the best, the best honey incredible. I've ever had. So when I was doing the pop-ups, I could actually be like a little bit more experimental and creative because I was only doing, you know, maybe 30 to 60 cocktails at a time. I didn't need like mass quantities of rare ingredients, which, you know, obviously I do need for a brick and mortar bar. But when I was doing the pop-up, um, I was visiting my relatives in Beirut and somebody had visited them coming from Iraq and they brought an entire, it wasn't like a, actually a camera, but it was like, imagine like a large camera sized Tupperware of the best honey I have ever seen, smelled and tasted. And it was from Iraqi Kurdistan. And it was, it was a uh, honey like on the comb and it was like intensely floral and smoky and like just God knows what. And so I took back a little amount and I'm like, I'm using this in a cocktail. Uh, Unfortunately, that honey is long gone, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) I've never, ever, ever seen anything like that. And I think it speaks to the biodiversity of that region. You know, part of why it was such an important cradle to human life is the intense biodiversity of of herbs and spices and plants and fruits and vegetables, which meant that should a blight hit one, others were okay. If you had a longer summer season, you had, you know, plenty to eat. You weren't, you know, things were going to come ripe at all different times throughout the year. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I have had some uh, Lebanese brandy, not a lot. Uh, Really? Yeah, yeah, I do. (laughs) Pardon? From where? Because I haven't. Oh, my friend Nick Wilson. Shout out Nick Wilson. Uh, he brought some uh, one evening and I had it with a group of friends, including uh, Kevin Martin uh, at a bar. He had he had ri- gotten away for them to be able to uh, give us a really lovely service of it. Um, and I do know that uh, to my knowledge, and you probably know more about this than I do, there was a large earthquake in the 90s that really impacted the uh, wine production and therefore some of the smaller brandy production happening there is 
I, I think that's what I remember reading in all my textbooks about wine. Huh. There was one in Turkey in the nineties. Yeah. The Arab world. Yeah. I'd have to look it up, but, uh, but yeah, I've had just a little bit of it. Um, he worked in, uh, DC a lot. So I know DC's liquor selection is sort of the opposite of like Ohio and Pennsylvania. You guys yeah, have we, like we everything. Call, <laughs> we call it the Wild West. It's like, it's not that we do have everything, but if we can't get anything, we are pretty much, there's no restrictions on bringing it in. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is amazing. So, um, you know, I've been collecting all these rums from Europe, which once I build a new rum shelf at the bar, we will be selling at the bar. You know, yeah. it's like it's not available from a distributor in D.C. Okay, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, it's not the same liquor laws because it's not you know, a state. Uh, <laughs> so. It's interesting because obviously, as you might imagine, we have a lot of um, Arab or other Middle Eastern regulars. And in this area, in the D.C. area, the majority of them are concentrated in Northern Virginia. And so many of them are like, well, why don't you open a bar in, in you know, this place in Northern Virginia? I'm like, not a chance would I open a bar in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> totally different everything. Um, yeah. 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 One of my um, very, very good friends, Ingrid Timbo. Shout out Ingrid. She was an Arabic translator um, in DC and in Syria previously. Yeah. Uh, and she, she would send me the wildest photos of the wildest spirits because she could get whatever she wanted. Um, well, cool also is that at least in like Lebanon and I presume also in uh, Palestine and um, Syria and Jordan, I've, I've been to uh, Jordan. I had the great misfortune of twice getting visas to go to Syria, obviously well before the Syrian war. And I never went. And I, it's one of my biggest regrets. Um, but like my joke is that in Lebanese Christian families, everybody's uncle or and or grandfather has a still in their backyard. Yeah. And, you know, it's often said that the best arag is the stuff made at home. And sometimes you'll go to like a shop or somebody's house or like a restaurant. And, um, you know, the rest, if you go to a restaurant, they might have the f like some familiar brands on the menu, but then they have what translates to like homemade arag or country arag on the menu. And there's this one shop that I occasionally go to and, um, the owner was like, oh, do you like Ara? I'm like, yeah. He, so he goes to his attic. He brings down like basically a gallon jug of, of homemade moonshine attic and just like pours me some. And it's like, this is what everybody's really proud of. Yeah. And it is, it is very natural part of the culture, part of the, your pantry, part of your yeah. food stuff. It, it's very different than, I feel that way often about rum in the Caribbean too. It's, it's a grocery. It's very different than it is Yeah. The that's actually a very good point because like there are a lot of shops that sell pantry items and preserves and stuff because traditionally, you know, Lebanon at least is a very mountainous country in the winter. It gets cold and snowy. Um, and there's a big tradition of preserving foods there. And in these like pantry shops, there's always little, like they almost they come in the same bottles that like rose water and orange blossom water comes in, but there's, you know, unlabeled bottles of arag on the shelf. Yeah, that does sound a lot like the Caribbean as well. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely uh, conversed with some distillers um, from Palestine. And obviously, I think, you know, a lot of people know Nimrod from Israel. Uh, and Which he also... in Palestine have you spoken to? Um, I can shoot you some messages. They're not, they're not like distilleries. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. But they're great yeah, folks. So if you're over there, you could absolutely visit. Coming out of Palestine, there's, um, 
we carry a 35 year old brandy that comes from a monastery in Palestine, which is delicious. And there's also another monastery there that's making like uh, herbal liqueurs. So like almost an equivalent of like a chartreuse or a Benedictine and they do different, different blends. Um, with any luck, those are going to start to be imported into the U.S. soon. But those are really cool. And it's funny because, like, that's in Palestine and in Lebanon. I don't even hear that stuff happening. It's just wine and, and ara, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. And, yeah, you, uh, your flavors and your beverages are also, as you mentioned, seen in your food. I think that yeah. one of the things that is so cool about – you as as someone who does, you know, work in bars and build drinks is you also have an incredible ability to cook. Like you picked up bread baking faster than anyone I've ever met in my (laughs) life. You were like, I'm going to make a bread. Two days later, you're like, here's my perfect 100% whole wheat, 100% hydration loaf. Is that okay? And I'm like, it's better than any loaf I've ever made. And I've been doing this for like 10 years plus. We're on like actually year 15 probably. Uh, You've just got an amazing Uh way with food and flavor and a lot of the dishes really reflect some of those same flavors. Would you talk a little bit about like- Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, a bit more background. I never worked in a bar or a restaurant before I started the Green Zone pop-up. I took a very, um, for lack of a better term, traditional like nine to five desk job type career path and realized I was getting bored um, which is when the pop-up started, but like I'd been into cooking since I was a teenager. Um, I sort of, <laughs> I can sort of blame the U S invasion of Iraq on that because I was a junior, I guess, in high school. And my mom who works, um, who runs like a nonprofit and NGO for Iraqi affairs, um, <laughs> was, so first of all, it was like, the funny thing, there's all these like little funny things from back then. One of them was that we didn't have cable TV. And I remember her saying, we're not going to war with Iraq again without us having CNN. Um, this is wow, yeah. Streaming news, before the streaming news days. And then I remember that like, in the lead up and during the invasion, like she wouldn't get home until like sometimes 9 or 10 p.m. And me being the only child that I am I was like well what are we gonna have for dinner she's like well do you want decent dinner then you make it um so I'm like okay challenge accepted so I just started learning how to cook all the things that I like to eat um and part of that was you know the Iraqi food that I grew up with um as well as I I also got really really into like Indian and Southeast Asian and East Asian food but yeah some of the Asian food you make is really like I find those dishes for myself, just the cultural background that I have, it's just very different than what I was raised cooking. And I find them challenging because of the layers of the flavor and the building of the flavor. It is just, I really have to stop and think about it because it's not as natural to me as like, you know, maybe one of like the Cajun dishes one of my grandmothers would make. Um, I actually think Cajun dishes have a lot in common with dishes from at least like Iraq, Iran, India, because they involve a lot of layering of flavor and a lot of like long cooking. Yeah, I think that's why it's like, that's the only thing I really have a reference point for when I start making those types of dishes, which you know that like, 
I, you know, we talk a lot online about food. Like I, I grew up with a really close friend who was Persian, which is of course, it's a big part of the world with a lot of different cultures, but some of the flavors are similar. And a lot of that reminds me of that. So I grew up with like a very soft spot in my heart for a lot of those types of dishes, lots of layers, lots of flavors, lots of super long cooking, lots of those homemade breads. Um, Oh, they're so flavorful and they're so quick. It yeah. just blows my mind. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, I, was, yeah. I was wondering as I got into this like bread rabbit hole that quarantine put me in, why European style bread is tall and puffy and bread from the Middle East and, you know, South Asia is flat. And it's like, I, I, I really dislike the term flat bread because it's like, fuck you. This is just bread from my part of the world. God damn it. <laughs> I it totally agree. <laughs> call it bread. <laughs> And I realized the reason is, is because in these hot or dry climates, you only want to use a little bit of wood. You want to get a very hot, very quick fire. And the way to actually bake is to thin out the bread. Whereas in Europe, I guess, where it was cooler and wood was more plentiful, you could have an oven for a more traditional bake. And that just sort of clicked on me one day. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, especially. But nobody talks about that. I've never seen any written reference to that. Agreed. Totally agree. And this is like, this is also a lot of my distilling knowledge, right? It's like, I don't see a written reference to it, but you just pull it together and you're like, oh yeah, obviously. Um, And also like the community oven where you need, um, I know in some places in uh, Eastern Mediterranean, Middle East, you'll need and create the loaves at home. Uh, You'll bring them to the community oven. They throw them in, fire them off, and then you take them home. And so you don't want to be there for 40 minutes. I mean, like, I think it's sort of, dying out in the larger cities but certainly in the towns that's a thing or if not you take your dough then at least you bring your like toppings to the baker and you're like okay put this on five of them and that one on another five of them and blah 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 and then you take them home that's very much still still active yeah absolutely and I love that 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 community in relationship with each other relationship and accountability to each other that connection is so it's so obviously different than a lot of dominant particularly like white american culture where you know conflict or families or community-based thinking is not what's celebrated and now of course with this pandemic we're seeing all sorts of very serious issues with that now that it has to be a community-based answer um yeah i mean you know the fact is this is not this is not like this is sort of tangential but I can walk around Beirut at two in the morning and feel much safer than walking around DC or New York at two in the morning. Wow. And it's just, you know, everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And like, you can't act out because like society won't allow it. Yeah. Um, it's it's... Society allows it here, but like there's so much more anonymity here. And, and we do allow it. I mean, as a culture, we have always glorified violence and and harm and I mean people walk around screaming at people and pointing guns at people because they can and and like you said that just would that would just not grow in a culture that was community and care based you know coming from seated from a position of care uh is somewhat hostile to the foundation of the country and we've just not dealt with it so part of the whole green zone thing is also to show that like you know 
Middle Eastern culture and specifically Arab culture is the culture of hospitality. And yes, I sort of take exception. I know there are probably many, many millions of people that will argue with me, but like I take exception to calling bars and hotel and restaurants and hotels, the hospitality industry, because, and it's like, I agree with almost everything Sutter Teague has to say ever, but like what Sutter Teague says on his little like lecture circuit is that, oh, you know, when you come here, when you come to Amore Margo, you know, the, the drink that you're getting and the music that we're playing and all of that is for free. What we're selling is hospitality. And it's like Southern, no, 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 no. Hospitality is free. Hospitality is ours to give. It is not ours to sell. Yes. I think that's uh, a really good point. Like, I like Southern a lot. And like, I've listened to several of his like seminars and stuff. And like, I agree with everything he says except that. And it's just like, you know, when somebody comes in, make them feel at home. And like, that does not get sold. That, that comes like, that's the baseline expectation. And like, it goes beyond saying, you know, the customer is always right. It's like, make them feel as good as they can while they're there. Yeah. And I, and I think there's hospitality TM, the packaged capitalist product. And yeah. then there's hospitality, the cultural ideal that, you know, in the U.S. is very importantly founded in the black community. You know, yeah. Southern blacks created hospitality in America. Um, and then, of course, like you're discussing in other cultures, hospitality is a cultural expression that flows through everything. I see this a lot with, you know, my father living part time in Mexico and being a dual citizen, um, being Mexican and being American, that hospitality centered way of life. It's, it's a cultural expression. It is not a packaged thing to be sold and especially attending resistance served, understanding how. I see it as quote unquote hospitality TM is yeah. one type of bartender in one type of bar. And it is not, you know, all of these expressions of authentic cultural hospitality. And just sort of like you were saying, like, I don't know why you call my flatbread bread and this is bread. It's sort of like, yeah, like it's not, it's all just bread. <laughs> um, but yes, on a side tangent. <laughs> I, was, I was talking with somebody at my bar recently. I was like, it was also another, Middle Eastern person and they said something to the I don't know we were talking about this exact subject and they agreed with me and they said no hospitality costs the host money like if I'm giving you stuff like it is it, it's not free to me um you know if I give you a free drink if you over to my, come over to my house and I lay out like every single cookie and all the types of tea that I have and keep stuffing you until you can't take any more because like it's my instinct to do that like I had to buy those cookies. I had to buy that tea. You know, it's not something I'm selling you. And I would say giving people free shit is not hospitality. <laughs> not not uh, in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. But I understand the like yeah. the care. But I mean, with my father's tribe, you know, I, I was really fortunate that one of his uh, tribe members had at one point needed medical care in the U.S. They lived near me and we would check on her every weekend. And I mean, this woman, much like their tribe, you know, my father always say like they have sticks and rocks and they're the happiest children on earth. You know, this woman did not have like a lot to give, but it didn't matter. Like we were like, we're going to go over and check on her. We can do it in half an hour. We'll catch our matinee and have some brunch. No, it was going to be three hours and it was going to be the most loving care. You were oh, going to yeah. feel so loved for. It was going to be uncomfortable uh, for me, like very much like, 
culturally raised Scottish Protestant, I'm like, this is very <laughs> comfortable how much appreciative this woman is being. Um, and yeah, and that was hospitality and it, it you know, it would just That's be whatever she had. traditional Lebanese Saturday or Sunday lunch out at a restaurant lasts for three or four hours. Yeah. It's not because, I mean, yes, they do pile on a million courses of food, but like, you know, people aren't actually eating for four hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the little bit of food I've had, uh, I could eat it for four hours. Um, <laughs> the little bit of food I've had in that corner of the world, which um, I just started exploring, uh, as you know, um, right when all this happened, um, you have traveled so many places. Do you speak a number of languages as well? Yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who like grew up as one of those third culture kids who said once in college that he's not fluent in any language. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, you know, obviously native English speaker, I'm like semi-native Arabic speaker. Um, my Arabic is still a bit broken, but you know, I have a native accent. Um, and like I did study, so Arabic is weird because it, it like it has a formal written language called standard Arabic or sometimes called classical Arabic. And then each country has its own dialect and like they might as well be different languages. It's the equivalent of if like France and Spain and Portugal and Italy and Romania and all of Latin America continued using their languages, but all wrote in Latin. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard it as like Italy extreme, whereas like in the north of Italy, it'll be very Germanic. And in the south, it's, it'll actually be very it's Muslim. I mean, it's much it's, more, yeah, extreme. <laughs> extreme. Oh, yeah. So I studied that for like five years. and I'm still not very good at it. But as far as like colloquial Arabic, yeah, I'm pretty good. I studied French for a while, like in school. I studied German for a little bit in school. Um, and then like I studied Persian for a little bit in school. And then like I sort of taught myself a lot of Turkish um and then like i can just just growing up like bilingual or semi-bilingual makes picking up languages very easy even if you don't get fluent so like in a couple in a, a week or two i can you know learn enough basics to survive in, in a lot of places um and also i'm just very interested in it so like i went to vietnam in november that was my first time in like asia outside of the middle east <laughs> <laughs> I, also, I also dislike the term Asian as a blanket term for East Asian. It's like, no, I'm half Iraqi. Yeah, that's Asia too. I love uh, in the uh, in the Mindy project when Mindy Kaling is like, I'm a dainty Asian woman because uh, it's like, yeah, Asia is a really big place, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. So Vietnam was my first time going to East Asia, and there's a big. I mean, it's, it's not like California, but in Northern Virginia, there's the biggest Vietnamese community on the East Coast, um, like 15 minutes from where I grew up. So. I was very used to, you know, Vietnamese food and hearing the language and stuff and knowing that, oh, they write in the same alphabet we do, but it doesn't sound anything like it. So for the two weeks before I went to Vietnam, I spent the first week learning how the hell do you pronounce this alphabet? And then this, the second week was like, okay, let's learn some basics now. Let's learn the tones and like, let's learn some basic stuff. So the, by the time I got there, I was not conversational, but I could at least like ask directions and order stuff from a menu and all that kind of stuff. So and I tend to do that, like, whenever I go somewhere new. Yeah. Um, and then also at that point, like, I'll forget a lot of it. Um, but some of it does stick. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Growing up in L.A., um, I knew Spanish quite well as a child. Um, I am very embarrassed that as an adult, uh, 
I, I would have to study to be able to converse in Spanish again, which is ironic because obviously my dad is fluent in Mexican Spanish. My husband, he still every day does his, you know, much more of the Spain style Spanish yeah. studies, but every day he does his conversation group. I'm like, Whoa. I feel very silly being like, I would have to pull it together. But just like you said, learning that as a kid, um, it is interesting to me when I travel, I actually, I was like very proud of myself on my last trip to Italy. I was very spoiled because um, Christian Seal did all my translating for me, but there was like a day I spent by myself and I just was like, I was, I was like, I could go, I could order, I could get what I needed. I was like, I pulled that together in three days. Great. Uh, <laughs> just because you have, like you said, that, that framework in your brain. And ironically, well, I guess not ironically, coincidentally, uh, with all of the masks, I have found that ASL, like having an understanding of conversational ASL, though I'm not good at it, like has helped a lot, like a lot just around our house, like just oh. me to my husband at the store, like just being able to sign across like a grocery store aisle or something. Oh, interesting. And I'm like, we all need to learn ASL. I mean, we could just like wear masks and get better, but since I guess we're not going to do that, we all need to learn another language. So. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so may I ask how service is going in DC? You guys are yeah, reopening. Yeah, absolutely. So we are now on phase two. We've been, so phase one started on May 20, I don't know, 7th or something, 29th. Um, so when we, when we got shut down on whatever it was, March 15th or 16th, we were allowed to do delivery and takeout only which we had never done. We tried it for a week and we're like losing money hand over fist. And it's like, let's not do this. Um, so fortunately for a bunch of circumstances, there was a fair amount of money in the bank. We were able to close for two months and I was able to keep my staff paid for a little bit of that time. And then we got a PPP loan and then I was able to pay them again. Um, and then we, and then phase one happened when it said we could do outdoor seating. Now we only had, we still only have a two table patio. Um, but as I said about asking nicely, we asked very nicely to our neighbors, um, on the block, if we could use the sidewalk in front of them for tables and, you know, because they're not a restaurant and they said, yes. So now we've got, uh, nine tables instead of two. And we are on caviar and Uber Eats, which are both awful, but, you know, necessary evils. Um, and we do a lot of, like, takeout and stuff. We're taking, like, hell is totally frozen over. So we're doing table service. We have reservations. And we do delivery. It's like, these are three things we literally never did and, like, refused to do before COVID. Right. It's, it's a strange, like you said, everything is so different. Everything is so different. And, like, you know, as I said, as I was saying to somebody before, there used to be like maybe one challenge to deal with a week. And now it's like literally a new challenge every day. Um, that has sort of calmed down. Like there were, <laughs> and, and people talk about pivoting and it's not like one single pivot. It's not like you turn 180 degrees. It's like lots of little tiny ones every goddamn day. And it's uh, super exhausting from what I hear from is, a lot of our industry yeah. people is like yeah. they're agility and reimagining their business every week um yeah honestly at this point to an extent we've sort of got it figured out but like there's still more that we can do so right now with all that we are 
hitting about 50%, maybe a bit more than 50% of our average revenue from before. Uh. And like, it's, that, fortunately, that's at the point where it's sustainable, like it's, it's at or above break even. But, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I have never the one to, you know, <laughs> embrace uncertainty. Uncertainty always freaks me out. Uh, same. (laughs) I'm always like, I just have to like take a deep breath and be like, just get through it. I, I definitely grew up not loving that kind of stuff. And this has been a whole, a whole new thing. Um, cause it's just part of the game. You know, the fact, and people, honestly, a lot of regulars and friends like, Oh, well, what are, so what are your plans? I'm like survival. Survival is the plan. Yeah. Um, because, you know, survival of the business and, you know, and, and not getting sick, like that's all you can ask for right now. Yeah. And I love how much care you're taking of yourself and your people and just setting the standard of a healthy expectation of behavior to protect your people. I've, I've really enjoyed as painful as this whole last few months have been, I really enjoyed our interactions because you're so easy to talk to because you are always like, as a leader, um, you know, a big important thing to me as another leader is like really caring for your people at the same rate, if not more than for yourself. And like, you are always thinking of your people and what's safe for them and what's best for them and what's quality experience for them. And I just, as someone who's like, knows you from those moments of just like thinking aloud late at night on a text, like, I really, really want to like call out how much I appreciate that in you and your leadership style. Yeah, I'm I'm glad at least somebody appreciates it. <laughs> right? That's the whole thing about being like <laughs> a leader type is like we all have to tell each other that cuz we yeah. forget under like the stress well, and I mean, it's it's, it's also it's also a bit of a transition because you know, by the time of Miami Rum Fest, which is the last time we saw each other, I really didn't have to be at the bar anymore. Like I could be gone for two weeks at a time and it would be fine if I was in town, I could stop in like a couple times a week for a few hours and it would be fine. And now I'm there every single day we're open plus another day. Yeah. That's Um, a lot. That's a lot. So. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Miami rum fest. Some of like the happy, happy pre the, the before times memories. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Your night guest bartending at, um, Oh my you god, know. that was so fun! Oh Jaguar. my god, Jaguar Sun, that was so what fun. Great, what a great bar they are, honestly. Oh, what a great bar they are! Yeah, actually, when we were talking about having to constantly be agile and constantly pivot, I was I was thinking of Will. Um, it's such an incredible bar, uh, and yeah, you guys' playlist that night was amazing. <laughs> and I was like coming off of Resistant Served, which was like such an emotional experience. I was like. Yeah. It was a little surreal, um, but like amazing. It was so much fun. The drinks were incredible. (laughs) One of the other things, one of the other alternative non nine to five careers I tried to pursue, although not very successfully was as a DJ. Um, I would actually say that music is probably my single biggest passion. And um, in college, I got myself some turntables and started buying shitloads of records. Like just as like vinyl was being phased out, it was like good timing, but music has always been super, super, super important. So like whenever we do our pop-ups, it's like, yeah, we're bringing the music with us, please. Yeah. I, uh, I used to DJ two nights in Denver. I did 
tear in my beer, which was all Dust Bowl country. Um, and then I did a garage rack night at Bar Bar um, just a couple times uh, before sort of I decided to leave uh, Denver. But yeah, all garage rock. So uh, the mummies and, and all that stuff. But I love your music collection. It shows. Uh, it definitely shows. I think we're probably similar ages. So yeah. Yeah, I think the Iraq War started when I was like a junior as well. I remember protesting in Denver. Um, and yeah, so I think I was just about that age. I was just about to graduate high school. So um, yeah, it's music has been such a powerful thing. And then obviously we all had a night out at La Trova, which was very special. So if you want to know what the green zone on a weekend upstairs is like during the normal times, Imagine like La Trova, but Middle Eastern. See, I'm very, I'm very into this. And I, you know, before in the before times, you guys would have, you know, all sorts of dance based stuff. And I just love dancing. Like, I just love it. It's fun. I don't care if I look stupid. It's so much fun. Um, and I yeah, love well, that. That's that a party of one of the other things that I wanted to do with the green zone was not just say, oh, the Middle East has all these cool flavors, which it does. And I think they're very, very under. Well, now Middle Eastern food is actually getting trendy, which I have mixed feelings about. But that's. I was going to ask you because that's like I've noticed that too. Well, we'll we'll get to that in a minute. But like, I wanted to show that it's not just the flavors; it's like the whole culture is like very vibrant and fun, and it's not just you know, big beards and burkas, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's like you know, for anybody that doesn't know that has never like lived in the Middle East or had Middle Eastern friends, they come upstairs on a Friday night and we've got our Syrian DJ playing and everybody is like losing their mind and like belly dancing and doing debke and like stuff like that. They're like, whoa, this is so cool. I had no idea. It's like, yeah, now you know. Yeah. And I think you and I listened to some of that same music. Like uh, I, we've interacted a little bit about it, but yeah, there's so much exciting, just fucking cool it's Music. finally now coming out. It took like a long time, but yeah, some of that, some of that like Indian alternative music from the Middle East is now finally starting to come out, and that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. My husband, he uh, he'll listen to these like. I, I'll have to send you. I'll maybe I'll post a link with this podcast, but it's like sort of this culture of like self-produced music spread on cell phones, and there'll be like oh, that's playlists from, yeah, from, from like. Um, from like West, North and West Africa, right? He has that too, because he's really like, he's very into Tuareg music. That's yeah. there as well, but he's also gotten some from more Middle Eastern type uh, areas. Mm. I'll, I'll post some, uh, I'll send them to you beforehand for vetting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's how he's heard of a, of a couple of some of his favorite musicians from there now. But like you said, like, even just like, the romance, romance, poetry, dance, um, like just totally different ways to define like even just like simple things like masculinity is like the expressiveness in dance through that is so different and so yeah. Oh, special yeah. and exciting yeah. and like very so, powerful. <laughs> oh yeah, like you know, I go to, you know, no disrespect to my American friends whose weddings I've been to, but like you go to those weddings and like the dudes tend not to dance. And like you go to an Arab wedding and the men are the first people on the dance floor. 
a thousand percent. Uh, and it's like, it's very much this, like this confidence and it's very like flowing and, and very powerful. And it's amazing. Cause like the shame and discouragement I see, like you said, at like a wedding I would usually attend with a lot of white folks, like that would be very, very, very different. Um, it's the other thing is that Arab weddings, you know, don't stop before two or three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean this wedding's over? It's 10 o'clock only. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I will, uh, I, yeah, exactly. Goes late, the party's hard, lots of confidence, lots of community. And like you said, it's not just the food. It's not just the drink. It is a part of the thread of the full overall culture. Um, that is so important. So um, absolutely, I dig that. And I can't wait to come visit. I know that. So DC right now has a travel ban from a number of states. Uh, do we? I didn't even know that. Yeah. Massachusetts does. I'm allowed to visit you. But if I came back home, it would be very complicated because Massachusetts has its own travel ban. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a brand new travel ban from like the 47 states or whatever that are spiking into DC. Um, you know, it's. I, I have no idea what the next three months will bring. I could have never guessed what the last three months yeah, brought. Yeah, okay. So part of me is like, I wouldn't be surprised if like we end up with some internation borders or whatever. This will end up looking like um, our travel ban is a soft ban to start, but uh, we just had a really large, we had like a 30% uptick over two weeks ago and they think it's a lot of summer travelers. Huh? In Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah. They think it's a lot of summer travelers, but it's always easy to blame the people from away. I don't know. I People around here could be safer. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that's true everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, D.C. is like a relatively young, liberal-minded city, and like most people are wearing their masks, but there's still plenty who aren't. Yeah. And, and who like not and there's still and there's not just there's a few who aren't there's still even a couple who like don't get what the big deal is yeah so and like yeah you're, you're never gonna get you're never gonna get 100 percent. right right it's like the cognitive dissonance meets trauma meets american exceptionalism and for <laughs> me it's like i come from this like very strong safety background right where it's like if you try to do everything correct 100% of the time, that means your unknown awareness of what isn't done correct is probably around like 80%. You're probably actually doing it 80% right, even if you think you're doing it 100% right. And so you have to do it 100% right to get that 80%, which creates the efficacy. No, if, if, the whole world, if the whole world on average were 80% right, we'd be in such a good place. Yeah, I, and I mean, I'm talking to you know, Gail in Barbados that was COVID free until very recently, one person uh, came across with it. It just makes me think like it could have been very different and it still could be very different um, yeah. if we got it together and the expense and difficulty of getting it right for a short period of time to heal is so different than this long, exhausting, very expensive failure of not getting it right for yep. a very long time. So, yep. 
I think we both feel that at our businesses. Obviously, restaurants are in a position that is far more difficult than a spirits producer. I think that we've really failed the industry. Um, and with very little regard, as always, our culture has very little regard for people in service. Um, and it, it's just kind of showing. And especially, I don't, I don't know if you even want to talk about this, but it sounds like a lot of the behavior in and around bars and restaurants has been very difficult because the exact type of person who is like, I want to go out and have fun is maybe the exact type of person right now who's incredibly difficult to deal with in sort of an unsafe compromised restaurant situation with yeah. with health and safety involved well i mean a lot of it is also on the restaurant to make sure that things are as you know as caught as for us to be as cautious as we can be so that when we do get a situation like that we can deal with it better you know there was this it's been making the news on like i think it was eater or washingtonian or something like that that you know here's a list of all the rest of like the city has just started issuing fines and warnings like in a big way to restaurants and businesses that are not in compliance with phase two regulations. And, uh, you know, we're not on that list, but a lot of the things on that list are like tables are too close together, uh, kept serving alcohol after midnight, uh, served alcohol without any food available. Um, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, or, you know, had more than six people at a table. It's like, well, this is why we have our tables six feet apart. This is why we have rules on the table on each table that say, you know, no more than six people per table, no standing, no switching tables, blah, 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 blah. So that if anybody tries to stand up or tries to wander to their friend's table, we can just point to their table and say, you know, I'm sorry, sir or miss, but uh, it's right here written on the rules. Like you have to sit down. Yeah. Setting that standard. People cooperate like with that once, you know, if it's, if it's written down, like there's not much room for argument. Right. And it's, it's like you said, it's designing that experience and setting that standard. We, we learn this a lot in safety culture for distillery safety that you just set. This is exactly our level and you will need us here or it's not going to happen. Like you're, yeah, you're just I mean, not going to be here. You meet us here. You're not going to be here. And that yeah. takes care of so many problems. And I see that as like online communities, like no, just set the standard that this is not okay. And then yeah. that won't be a problem anymore. And people are too accommodating and too soft. And like, I they, mean, it's very tough. It's, and I, I, I forget who was mentioning it. I don't know if it was on your podcast or maybe it was somebody else's, maybe it was even Dave Arnold, but like, it's such a clash of like wanting to, you know, be hospitable and accommodate whoever you can and versus having to follow these potentially life-saving rules. And unfortunately right now, as much as it's against our instincts, survival rules for survival win. Yeah. And learning how to balance. I think this is so important, especially in an industry predicated on making people feel good and like making the situation comfortable and not making anyone uncomfortable is finding a balance between appropriate comfort and then reducing harm or stopping harm you can't just make people comfortable to the extent that they can be you know bigots or be really unsafe in their health behaviors like you can make people feel comfortable and you can create an inviting environment and you can draw healthy boundaries that you enforce to allow that to survive it's not all or nothing and and finding out that nuance of how to hold many things at once i think i hope could be really empowering for people yes, I'm a kind person. And also this is my line. And 
And that's as far as I can extend my kindness to you. My kindness ends when you are being unkind and unding and dangerous to me. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, that's yeah. pretty much, that's pretty much where we've arrived at. Yeah. So you are the king of rock, as I understand. <laughs> oh my God. So I had actually <laughs> never seen that full video until <laughs> my friend from high school posted it. You're uh, very adorable, very handsome, upstanding young man. Uh, that must have been from 2002 or, or yeah, 2002 probably. So high school? Yeah, so either probably senior in high school. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was on the It's Academic team because I'm a giant dork. Um, uh very yeah. adorable dork it was yeah. very sweet uh in your yeah. suit oh oh <laughs> yeah um i now overwrote a wedding um but uh yeah at that point i was like i was playing in a band in high school i was like obsessed with guitar um and also like beginning to get obsessed with old school hip-hop so that of course King of Rock line is not from rock and roll at all. It's straight from Run DMC. Yeah, I love it. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> and you still play music pretty regularly, it seems. Um, it comes in spurts. There's like months or even years when I don't pick up a guitar and then there'll be like a spurt of like a month or two where like I'm playing guitar all the time. I think that's natural. I think that's totally part of the process. Um, when I, yeah, I mean, when coronavirus started and I was living in my one bedroom apartment alone and not going out at all. I was playing a lot more guitar. And then like, I moved back to my parents' house in the middle of it. Cause you know, it's a full house and I'm not cooped up. Um, and also shadow likes it much more. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I sort of stopped playing guitar, but yeah. I mean, like I said, music is a huge thing for me. Um, and you know, at this point I just play for myself. I don't really have any much desire to play with other people, but you know, I, um, I call myself a musical evangelist. <laughs> and, you know, if somebody was like, oh, what religion are you? I'd say music. I love um, that. Yeah, yeah, you were, uh, you posted some, was it Omar Suleiman you posted recently, I want to say? Um, well, can you give me a little more context? Yeah, it was like the green zone and it was this amazing photo of him just like just being him, like total fucking badass. That, that just, sounds, yeah, that sounds like our same man. Yeah, <laughs> he's just like, he's got his watch on, he's got oh, that yeah, that's, look. That's, that's definitely him. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, loved he, it. He could have become the patron saint of the Green Zone. Yeah. <laughs> we have three of his, so up, one of the, one of the, um, part of the decor upstairs. So upstairs we call the um, Club de la Resistance. <laughs> um, love it and uh part of the but that's you know where the dj booth is where the small dance floor is and uh the decor is like framed album covers from middle eastern um musicians records um now i've got a lot more but like two years ago when we opened that was basically like all i had i'm like okay in the several years of collecting these are the middle eastern records i have we're going to frame these and put these on the wall so there's three Amar Suleiman. Uh, albums there and then one of my former bartenders was like very skilled with like chalk art uh did a whole like chalk drawing of Amar Suleiman on the chalkboard above the bar um so yeah he's kind of he's kind of the patron saint of the bar 
That's amazing. Yeah, his music. And incredible. you know, twice now I've tried to see him in New York, and twice his visa was denied. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. And it's what's even worse is that the second time was actually the makeup show for the first time that was canceled. Oh no! <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a whole other subject for like yeah. making things difficult that just don't need to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it's it doesn't serve us in any way. Um, so it's really challenging. But yeah, he just like. He just radiates like badassness. <laughs> well, it's really funny because I think he's probably at this point more famous in the West than in the Arab world. Yeah. Wow. Like, I mean, maybe like in his part of I mean, he's from a really like there's no other way to put this. There's no nice way to put it. He's from like a country ass part of Syria. Yeah. Uh, and like I joke that like so talking back to Arabic dialects, like the Syrian and Lebanese, like the Levantine accent is very different than the Iraqi accent. But that Syrian accent is based on Damascus, which is the entire opposite end of the country. And whereas where Amr Seyman is from is culturally much more similar to Iraq because it's on like the Euphrates. And as I like to say, Amr Seyman sounds more Iraqi than Iraqis do. Ah, that is a really interesting insight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I knew a little bit about... Um just a little bit about the Syrian accent difference, but never like that much. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... The first yeah. time I heard him, I'm like, oh, he must be Iraqi. And like, no, he's Syrian. I'm like, well, where in Syria is he from? I was like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah. It's, it's reminding me of uh, one of our distillers. His uh, fiance is from... Maine, but it's a part of Maine where they only speak French. So a lot of people oh. who live there never learn English. Yeah. Because uh, it's just like no one ever speaks it. So, like the owner of Patagonia, you know, Patagonia, yeah, yeah. He, he didn't learn English until his 20s. He only spoke French because he's from no that way. Maine. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, like, we'll be hanging out with her and someone will be like, oh, yes, Jessica. And I'm like, who the fuck is Jessica? Oh, Jess, got it. <laughs> uh so it's just like yeah it's we see this all over the world right like it's just yeah human. it's just human but i really love what you guys are doing there uh i am like dreaming of being able to like just sit down and have like a meal like if we were out on the road by now i would have we would have been like chicago all sorts of places i would have been like let's sneak off for a dinner let's eat for a couple hours oh yeah let's just sure. talk and like i'm definitely missing that with a lot of our people but particularly i really want to get out and uh and see you as soon as oh. it makes any sense i know you're so busy and things are so wild uh still but are you thinking of going to UK Rumfest? People are starting to ask this. I'm probably Is it not. happening? That's a great question. Uh, as far as I understand, it is. I've it's long. I mean, my own opinion is now July 27th. So it's in, we've got like August, September. So we've got like two and a half months. A lot could happen in two and a half months. Right. Or, a lot, or more to the point, a lot could not happen in two and a half months. Yeah. Um, very true it's like I, two know, and a half I, months ago was a different world than today so i appreciate you know ian and the rest of the rum fest optimism but i'm gonna be 
I'm probably not going to decide until it gets much closer to it. Yeah. I'm very weary. I'm like, even if things seem to be improving, it doesn't mean that it couldn't go poorly very quickly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, also, I know some people who've been like traveling for fun now. And it's like, where are you going to go? Nothing's open. Yeah. I like the UK is (laughs) the UK is the US of Europe. <laughs> Boris Johnson is the fucking Trump of Europe. Actually, he is. He is. Not Victor Orban is the Trump of Europe. But, um, <laughs> shout out to Gergo Murat. <laughs> um, oh my god, but, we need to have dinner soon. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, the UK is like almost as fucked as the US is. Yeah, it's not great. It's so not like, great. It, you know, can we say that in two and a half months or three months that? we can all pour into the bloody expo center and like be fine, you know, masks off drinking from little tasting glasses around hundreds of other people. I don't think so. Right. I, um, I, yeah. And just two notes. You could think it's one thing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Rum fest last year in the UK. I loved hanging out with you there. You know, so I, so I, my, my mom's family, when they left Iraq, um, first moved to Lebanon, but then like, I guess try to diversify their uh, <laughs> their home bases, and they bought um, property in London in the 1960s, and so they've had a flat in London since the 1960s. And like as a kid, it was always like the cheap holiday was okay. Let's find some cheap tickets to London, and we'll just stay for free for two weeks. So for a very very long time, London was felt like my second home. Um, and I've, you know, I've lived there twice. I used to go at least once a year. So like now with the bar being open and other stuff, like I haven't been able to go as much. So it was like, oh, Rumfest is happening? Cool. It gives me an excuse to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I used to go four or five times a year for the Masters of Wine um, oh, no. just until last year. So it feels, like you said, like a second home. Um, I've got all my little spots. I... Mm-hmm. I have my like own little quote guest room at a friend's house that I've just stayed in a hundred times. And uh, yeah, I, I miss it, but I'm also just like, I know like if we don't know what we're dealing with and you don't know what could go wrong in a week overseas. Um, yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to, I mean, you know, <laughs> you don't want to end up like Kate and be stuck somewhere for three months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Those repatriation flights and like okay. just hearing how that's gone for a number of people I know it's been complicated. Yeah. So I don't know. And the, I know that there have been a lot of like, um, not full on rum fest, but a lot of like online tasting events and like, sure, that's fun, but like, it's really not the same. Yeah. It's really and not also, the same. And also if you're across the pond, I don't think there's much they can do for you. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. Agreed. Um, so However, I will say uh, congratulations because all the new distillers drawers are sold out at Sealbox. Oh, are they? Oh, they wow. are. I was like, so I finally tried the four that I got and I'm like, okay, for the bar, I want to get Son of Wolf and um, L'Alliance. So I went back to Sealbox to buy some more and they were all sold out. And the other, the other two or three were as well. Oh man. Well, we should chat because we'll find some way. We have, we have Les Alliance at the distillery. Uh, I've got like a little extra held aside stash there. So obviously it's DC. So life is different. (laughs) 
uh, but yeah, we'll talk and get something figured out, but that's so cool. Yeah. And I, I heard our Velier stuff in Europe sold out really fast. So that was really nice. Um, and unexpected. Uh, I think it's been interesting cause obviously it's a Velier product that they sell, but most people don't know how that stuff kind of works. So it's yeah. been interesting to field um, customer service requests from Europe. And I'm like, uh, we, it's not our product. We don't sell it. Uh, yeah. But here's all the information you requested. I could totally help you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do know all about it. So it's been really, really cool. And it was, it was interesting for us because a lot of people had, didn't have any familiarity with Privateer beforehand. So it wasn't like they were already fans trying something they were already rooting to like. Uh, so I was really happy with the feedback we got because, you know, we love, we love, love, love our community. That's so supportive. But yeah, I also worry like, are we in our own little echo chamber thinking we're cool when maybe we're not? So it was really nice. Yeah, to hear but I mean, also, I think the fact that, you know, Luca deemed you worthy is a huge thing because so many people will buy whatever he puts out. Yeah, it meant a lot. It meant a lot that people were really given it a go and they seemed really excited that it tasted so well at just three years old and um that that made me very very excited so thank you thank you for those kind words about sealbox we've been really happy to use them as a partner um and always working to keep that i found their address in dc and they share the address with the um axe throwing beer bar amazing <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know DC had one. I thought it was in Baltimore only. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I always think of it as such a Canadian thing because it was very <laughs> prominent in Canada, just north of us, like for a while before it showed up here in the States. Um, so, yeah, I find that interesting. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they share space or it's just the same like warehouse type building, but I thought that was very funny. Yeah, you know, it's but just... Yeah, I mean, people in D.C. aren't really familiar with Privateer either. Um, True. We've had somebody gifted us a bottle of Queen's Share a while ago. <laughs> There's like an ounce of it left. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we haven't sold any, so I'm not... I, I, to be honest, it might have been given us given to us only like a quarter full anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I would like to get more on the shelves, and I was, you know... So yeah, worked out soon. Yeah, I mean, people have definitely heard a little bit about us in the rum world, but if you get outside of a very small circle, most people have never heard of us. Most people in the state of Massachusetts have never heard of us. Yeah. We're still I mean, really the rum tiny. World in this area, is like five people, and I know. I, let's put it like the rum world who are not bartenders are like five people, and I know all of them. <laughs> so. Yeah, we have uh, a uh, we have two sisters and a brother-in-law who live there, so they have like a secret privateer stash to like oh, rival, shit. not Richie, but like a, a pretty serious collector at their home. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think Mount Vernon ha might have a couple bottles of privateer knocking around from when we distilled rum there. In that area, obviously very different than actual DC. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's definitely it's it's a we're tiny and, and we know yeah. it. Thank goodness. Um, my my whole plans of making Green Zone a hidden rum bar have kind of been derailed by COVID because there's no like at the bar service anymore. 
Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. It's very hard to hand sell something when somebody is seated at a table out of sight of the bar. Yeah. Such a big experience is looking over the bar and seeing all the bottles and asking what's that and what's that. And yeah, yeah it's a whole new world. We're, we're all figuring it out, man. It's a, uh, it's gotta be really intense to just have your service totally change like that. It's so weird. It's so weird. Like, table service god no. like a service bar our bartenders are now service bartenders which like we never had a service bar there was basically like because it was only ever bar service only yeah. and so now there's like service tickets and stuff and it's just like this is so and i you know yesterday uh somebody at a table was like oh can i get another one of these beers i'm like sure so i rang it in and brought him the beer and then one of my bartenders brought the same beer out i'm like wait a minute is that for a3 he's like yeah Wait, did you already give him one? I'm like, yeah. It's like, oh, you forgot to give us the ticket. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> Whole new things. Exactly. Like, I, get, I can tell you a hundred things just like that at Privateer where we're like, what are we doing now? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, at table A1, we had some friends of ours sitting and it's like, do you guys like beer? And they're like, drink and leave it. That's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. it's it, There's just like so much to keep in track of. And, you know, it's you know, masks on pretty much at all times, gloves on for everything. Our biggest single expense now, honestly, seems to be gloves. And it's like, sometimes you still forget, like, to, you know, you're heading out to the table with a plate in your hand and like, there's no gloves. And like, either me or my GM will be like, gloves, gloves, gloves. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so weird. It's so weird. Like, sometimes I'll just be like walking around the house and I'll stop and be like, oh yeah, that fucking pandemic is real. Fuck. That was a whole thing. <laughs> Like it just seems like it's not real, and then something reminds you something well, you that would have been a pretty so rural area, right? Yeah, we are. It's like it's so funny, Massachusetts. Yeah, so we live in like a very small, intimate family farming community on the north shore of Boston. So we're just twenty min, twenty miles outside of Boston on the coast, and it is we are very spread out. So we're really lucky. Like I will say we're so grateful uh, right now that we have, you know, a house to ourselves. We have space between us and our neighbors. I can go for a walk and very easily control who I come into contact with and how um, we've got an incredible whole animal butcher who will drop everything right in my trunk. I don't even have to get out of the car um we're we're just living very simply so my husband grew up a kind of rough and tumble so we're really and and I definitely had like my own experience as a child that we we know will be fine no matter what like goes wrong because it's always been worse um yeah. so we're just like we have a very simple life right now we're cooking meals sitting out on our stone patio going for walks and really I'm hustling really hard at work like last Monday was a very, like that, I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, that was one of the longest, hardest days I've done in years. Um, so yeah, a lot of mine is just phone calls, um, creating all sorts of stuff, like you said, to communicate in a totally different way, totally online, things like this podcast and just answering lots of questions. Um, and yeah, lots of ideas about how we're going to handle this fall, um, you know, we're worried. We're worried about what the fall is going to bring. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm really starting to worry about winter. Like, cause 
you know, DC in fall is still sort of outdoor okay weather, but like by the by November it's starting to get cold. Yeah, yeah. I, and um, I think we're thinking if North Massachusetts where there's gonna be feet of snow on the ground, but Yeah, it's gonna get cold. <laughs> I have, I have uh, I have an aunt who lives in Arlington, Mass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Arlington. Yeah, yeah well, I'm not from there, so she doesn't talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we would go occasionally for Thanksgiving, and, like, snow on Thanksgiving was not unheard of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's cold. I also worry about, you know, we always see a really big uptick when people stop going outside less and start hanging out indoors closer more. There's always a really bad cold and flu season here and if October, November, December is is rough and there's lots of shutdowns and lots of slowdowns, that's a really important time of year for us, just like restaurants. Um, and then heading into a January, February, March that might be tough, that could be really hard. So yeah. we're working really, really hard every day to like get the business healthy and strong and think about what we can do is, you know, just like a lot of restaurants, we're super small, we're independently held, we're locally owned, we're not, you know, juggling international finances to like you stay that way. Us. I love staying this way. It, it makes me really happy, but it does mean like we're working really hard around the clock just to make sure we're just like you, we can like take care of our people and keep them safe, you know, not only, you know, physically, but also, you know, emotionally and financially keep everything really sustainable for everyone so we can be here um, yeah. for the long haul because it's, who knows, who freaking knows what, you know, the next four months will bring. And so we're just really trying to make sure we do everything we can so that we feel like we feel good about like, yeah, we did everything we could. Awesome. We got ourselves really strong. We got ourselves really prepared. Like you said, we're pivoting every week. It feels like, um, yeah, for sure. And just even like being able to be supportive of restaurants, um, who, you know, have really different needs right now, um, and hearing those needs and, and making sure we're like hearing them, hearing their needs, making what we can happen for them, supporting them in a way that's meaningful. If it means, you know, dropping off much smaller orders or, you know, even some of them want larger orders just a lot less often. And however they're building their budgets out, like making it work um, because it's just so difficult. And, and obviously, like I said, we are in a big privileged position that a lot of restaurants aren't in that, like we can work on retail and things like that. So um we won't have any more special releases coming out. I feel like, I feel like because uh, we suddenly, like restaurants were just understandably totally silent in Massachusetts for a few months because they were completely shut down. Um, right. We could offer support, check in, hear how they're doing, talk to them about their families, but obviously no one's talking business for months. We were able to like, all these dream rums we had been building because it takes a long time to build a product in our industry. Like you sure. first had to have made it years ago, which we already did and planned for, but like, <laughs> but like putting it in a bottle, designing the label, getting federal approval, getting the label printed, seeing the design proof. Did you like it? Do you want to change the paper? Do you want to reprint it? Do you want to change this? Okay. Get a new federal approval. Like all that stuff takes such a long time. I feel like we've had a lot of products come out. Like, because we've been able to do all that stuff. And the TTB has been very quick to respond because I think their That's demand, good. 
their That's demand good. is really down. So yeah, it's been like two or three days turnaround, which is unheard Whoa, of. Agency, my God. Yeah. So we're uh so we've been able to like roll out all this stuff we've been really excited to and working on to roll out, but we won't have anything else roll out until you know late October at the earliest. So um good, I can uh, rebuild my own budget. <laughs> Yeah, we want to be respectful and not like just bombard people with like the constant. We uh, we finally launched like a spirit section of the menu after two years of wanting to do so, and um, it's uh, this, the categories are rum and everything else. Oh my god, I love that! <laughs> I love that. Uh, how my, do you have, my, what's that? Ahead. How do you have your rums uh, organized on the menu? By country. I love it. Oh. Um, but, by country and um, age and ABV. And may I ask, what do you call unaged rums? Just in um, your own life. Do you call them white rum, silver rum, unaged rum, rum? Um, I usually call them white rums. Me too. Um, I think silver is stupid, but whatever. I mean, really, <laughs> they're clear, right? They're not white either, but you know, silver just sounds a bit too pretentious. They're they're glittery. They're shimmering, shimmering rooms. Well, you know, in a way they are. <laughs> um, yeah, I, usually white or unaged. Yeah, me too. I was just talking to Kate Perry about that earlier. Was, I don't know if you saw my post. You you were part of the um, sugarcane and sugarcane accessories, aren't you? I am, but I don't know if I've seen a recent post. <laughs> I mean, first of all, what an amazing name. Oh, <laughs> I love it. It's very to the point. <laughs> I came up with that. It was part of that ridiculously convoluted group chat. Um, yeah, they, they did not like my wizard of the fourth order of yeah. authentic rum with matching capes as the name of the group, uh, but that's fine. I think it might have been Chalky that came up with that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I made a post on there on Daiquiri Day, and I said, you know, I really loved seeing all these various and delicious looking daiquiris you all posted but to me a daiquiri with no further qualification is made with cuban or cuban style rum and if it's anything else like you should say what the variation is or just give it a whole new name and it's like does anybody else is anybody else with me on this and it got like a shitload of comments and a Ooh. lot of people are and I, and I mentioned a few rums that i like for daiquiris i said you know havana club three probe um, you know, William George, uh, Denizen three-year, uh, Bacardi Heritage, Real McCoy three-year, and a lot of people were like, well, what about, you know, this and that, and what about that, and that's like, well, what do you mean by Cuban style? It's like, okay, well, having tried pre-embargo Cuban Bacardi and, and drinking Havana Cup three-year regularly, it means a light, a unaged or lightly aged rum that could be all column, or it could be a blend of column and pot, and it is not so clean as to have no flavor like there's still a discernible rum flavor to it that's why you know bacardi regular doesn't count that's why something like rum bar silver or you know <laughs> rum fire for god's sake doesn't count as a pure unqualified unadjective daiquiri and like most people are not <laughs> down with that <laughs> Which is interesting I'm, I'm, because if it were, you know, a Manhattan, they would really want it stated if it wasn't, you know, rye or if it was an old fashioned. Yeah. They'd really want it stated if it wasn't bourbon. Like if you made it with scotch, everyone would be like, oh, you clearly have to say that. But it, it just falls in that vein of 
it's like you don't treat rum with the same respect yeah, yeah. well no, this isn't this isn't a group of like very engaged yeah for people who don't know this group because i think it's a secret group uh it is a very engaged consumer is what i would call it (laughs) yeah well it's not just a lot of it's industry as well yeah that's true the majority of it is industry um but you know somebody's like well for me daiquiri is like the, the ultimate test of any rum i bring home but it's like no but this is also why like there's you know some some drinks are better suited for some rums like you know if I'm bringing home an agricole, I'm not going to make a daiquiri with it. I'm going to make a tea punch with it to see how it works. Well, it's I will tell it. you, rum producers tend to, we are not bartenders. We are right. not bartenders. But I've heard many rum producers say, not every rum is made for a daiquiri, and not every rum makes a good daiquiri. Yeah. And it can be a lot sometimes to get handed a daiquiri with, say, like, you know, a really oaked, really old, really earthy kind of pungent style it's like the the Cuban style of rum. It it I love the Cuban style because it is so light and delicate, yet still very earthy, which is yeah. a really unique expression. Yes, it is a very unique expression. Um, um, but back to so I mean that's sort of a tangent. You're asking me about white rum. It's weird because I like you know super high ester rum, whether it's from you know Jamaica or Reunion or wherever else. And I love agricole, but I also have this very soft spot for like well made Cuban style rum. So, like, I get really excited when I see a really good, like, not super funky white rum on the market in a way that I feel most people don't understand. And I'm like, oh, this might be an amazing daiquiri rum. I'm going to get super excited. Or, like, I went and bought, there's this one store, there's this product called Bacardi Heritage. And if you don't know it, it came out in 2012 for Bacardi's 150th anniversary. Yeah. And it's fucking fire. It's very cool. And it's like, it's you, very cool. you could have been making this the whole time. Why didn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I have very mixed feelings about Bacardi. If you couldn't tell. Yeah. But, I like, I have so many great friends who work there. I really appreciate so many people on their team. David Sid is like such a sweetheart. Jacob Breyers is so kind. Like people always expect that we hate Bacardi and I'm like, like they'll see us, you know, complicated. <laughs> It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> um, but like, you know, what I heard is that this rum got discontinued. And so I thought, oh, womp womp. So I bought myself like two or three bottles when I found it for sale. Then I found this one store in DC that seemingly has this limitless quantity of it. So the last time I went, so one time I bought like seven bottles from them. Last time I went there, I was like, oh shit, they still have it. I'm like, I will buy all you have. So it was like a case and a half. So I bought myself a case and a half. So yeah. at this point, I'm sitting on like 17 bottles of this Bacardi Heritage, which will probably last me much longer than my lifetime. Um, and like, people are like, I don't get it. Why are you spending all this money on Bacardi Heritage? Well, first of all, it's only $16 a bottle, but also it's like almost perfect for what it's meant for. Right, right. And I, I totally agree with you. I have a very deep passion for white or unaged rums. I think that they cannot hide their flaws very easily, which is, I think, why there's so much heavy filtration, et cetera, involved in a lot of them. Um, You know, our distillery uses like zero filtration and zero anything. So it's exactly what you get. But I can really taste, and especially in our white rums, like you can taste everything we did. Like nothing can hide in there. Um, And like the Clarence and like a gorgeous white agricole or a lot of the you know, white Jamaican rums. Um, I, I think they're so beautiful and I really hope 
as a culture, we can kind of come to to love and understand. Okay. Which and one is the new your new white rum? Is it the Reserve Silver Reserve, or is it the so new England white yeah. rum one hundred percent lost? Silver Reserve is old school. We okay. came out with New England uh, white rum uh not too long ago i want to say like a year and a half i've got a little sample of it right here provided to me by jeff and meredith uh jeff and meredith i need my little meredith sting it's like meredith because uh she's amazing oh wow it's very coconutty thank you yeah like really strong coconut yeah so it's single column all batch distilled 100 percent single thanks you have made a very tropical tasting rum up there in Massachusetts. <laughs> the the right yeast and the right ingredients. Yeah, no doubt. Yum. All right, this is my first time trying it. Actually. Okay. Ooh, I want to hear what you think of the texture, especially for building drinks, because for forty percent, it's thick. Like it. Is this column or pot or a blend? It's single column. So first distillation pot still, second distillation batch single column eight plates. Uh, and I like it thick. I like most things in life thick. So that's like <laughs> T-H-I-C-C. Like that's, oh, that's cool. my thing. <laughs> is there any other way to spell it? Uh, there is not. <laughs> not in my world. <laughs> yeah, it's no. So it comes off quite thick. Um, really like heavy, almost banana candy flavor. And then that like coconut top note. Yeah, I like it. Thanks. Yeah, that's a that's one I I, I love that one. It's very simple. Um, it's very like honest and straightforward. It's not fussy, um, but it is very transparent in that you can you can really taste everything that it's happens. It's also like super. When I say clean, I don't mean like. Like it's, it feels like it's a very, I guess since it's a column, like you're not taking cuts in quite the same way, but like it feels very like centered. Thank you. Yeah, because it is batch, we are still taking a heads and a tails cut as opposed yeah. to taking cuts off the column. And and yeah, we want it to be- It's like very like, hard to see. I feel like you could balance it on the tip of your finger. That's like, that's what yeah. I'm going for. Like yeah. a Like a spinning plate is like what we talk about a lot at the distillery is like making the white rum is like spinning plates you have to get like everything going like at the right speed and the right tension and the right vibe so that you can just step back and like everything's in perfect balance um, yeah yeah we call it spinning plates at the distillery when we make white rum um <laughs> and yeah it's no filtration no nothing that is literally exactly what came off the still plus water um thanks and yeah, it's should, we're hoping it's vibrant um, and it's got some good like drive down the center of the palate. It's, it's still got some energy to it, even though it is 40%. Um, and then we have our Tres Aromatique. I don't know if you've ever had that one. I have not. Okay, I'm gonna try to find a way. Uh, Cause that was our first sort of double pot stilled expression and it is, very aromatic, very powerful uh, style. And then the Habitacion white expression that's coming out is also double pot stilled, a little bit different um, than sort of the style we were going for. Like we'll, we blew it out still differently. 
Um, and then when in rum is a 63% ABV. Um, yeah, I can't wait for that one. I'm very excited for that one. It is like, it's really good. I'm very proud of it. It's like, I'm trying really hard to like communicate my like, my passion for white rums. And I feel like that one captures a lot of what it is I see technically that I'm excited about in in white rums or unaged rums. Um, well, it's very interesting that Luca has also like started releasing more and more unaged rums because he clearly, I mean, I guess we're not the only ones. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know Kate Perry is obviously very excited about a lot of the uh, the white or unaged. I think she goes by unaged rums that she offers and yeah, I think there's... Yeah, on the menu at the bar, I write unaged. I don't write white. Yeah. And in my day-to-day -day life, I call them white. Uh, and I, I know... Uh, in, sorry, go ahead. You know, do you know Nick Crutchfield? I don't. He's from... Well, he's from Charlottesville originally, but he was in D.C. for many, many years. And he now... He's been working for Diageo for a lot, so he's now, like, in a national position at Diageo. But he was doing a presentation on, I don't know if it was Lagavulin or Kulila, or uh, probably Kulila, but he said, like, well, the slide says it's unpeated, but I hate that term, because how the fuck do you unpeat something? <laughs> non-peated. I'm like, that's a very good point. It's a very good point. It's a very, very good point. <laughs> unpeated, we... Yeah, you would have to make a very, very early tails cut to unpeat something. <laughs> that would be the technical way to do it, and no one would, like, yeah, peat is something, it's not like it's there and you take it away. It was also very interesting, um, speaking of Diageo, what's the Scottish dude's name who lives in Annapolis, Ewan something, Ewan Morgan? I don't know. He's also, like, national Diageo, I think he's, like, He's a bona fide Scotsman who happens to live just, you know, 45 minutes away in Annapolis. But uh, it was at BCB last year, and there was a seminar on, like, Kleinleash and water and all this stuff. And, you know, he's talking in his fantastic, thick Scottish accent about how, you know, Kleinleash is on this lake and blah, 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 and it's such pure water. And he's like, how much do you think that affects the whiskey? And everybody, you know, you know, like, raise your hands if you think a lot. Raise your hands if you think a little. And then like, everybody's like, oh, it must affect the water, the whiskey a lot. And he's like, you're all wrong. We, like, triple osmosis filter it. And they it all do. Pure water, and it makes no fucking difference. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, well, it's like, it's also pretty cool to hear that from Diageo themselves. Yeah. No, uh, everyone does reverse osmosis uh, <laughs> their water pretty much. Um, and I think that marketing hype in the 90s got so intent on water is everything, which became like a way to maybe not talk about some of the other things going on in production. If stuff was bulk purchase, brought in, whatever. I feel like I'm glad we're pulling away from the water is everything, even though it's all reverse osmosis. I will say I did get to do a technical tasting seminar where there was like a spirit and it was proofed with three different types of reverse osmosis water, one from the local source, one from like just somewhere else's tap water, and then one from the actual center where we were tasting. Um, and there was a subtle difference, but yeah, it's like, it is not when they're like, it's 50% of the flavor. I'm like, no, <laughs> it is all reverse osmosis. It is all 
very, very similar. Um, I do think there is, obviously it's not nothingness that you're adding, but it is not what people claim it is. And that whole, I think specifically in scotch where a lot of the grain is all coming from the same place. The peat is all coming from the same place. Yeah. A lot of what's aged is central warehouse aging. So everything's aged in the same place in these central warehouses. It's not like it's aged on the Island or aged in the Highlands or aged, you know, in that one town where the distillery is, it's a lot of central warehousing. Um, w set book about that. I, there might be mention in the W set book. And I know this can be common in all sorts of places, even in islands where it's like, yeah, we all, all us companies, we all rent space in the same central warehousing. Um, Cause it's so expensive to build barrel warehousing um, and obviously big safety concerns and maintenance and work. So um, I think people like a lot of what we learned from marketing based knowledge was stuff that, you know, just doesn't have anything to do with anything really i think a distillery like ours or like worthy park where yeah we use like a single origin thing and like we make it in one place and we age it there and we bottle it there is very rare i love to celebrate those places and i think it's great um and like obviously all scotch is aged in scotland and bottled in scotland that's part of the quality control to ensure there's no tampering um how about those gis huh Oh man. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing. Uh, I, I think that aging and bottling is very clearly understood in every industry from perfume to wine to whiskey that doing it at the source of origin ensures that there's no trickery or bulk blending or, or, or like there's just not a lot of room for a lot of the trickery to enter. It used to be that wine was shipped over to London and bottled there. And because laws change, records are not reported in the same way. Like people would mix in all sorts of stuff. And, and I, I think that ensuring quality bottled at the source has always been a big thing. And yes, of course there's an environmental concern. Don't get me wrong. Um, I know that there's a lot of discussion right now in our industry about bulk shipping and shipping in glass and all these things, uh, they're important considerations, but we also should remember, like, those are the visible considerations. Like, what is their boiler source power? Like, there's so much going on that has such a huge environmental impact that you just don't see, but people see yeah. glass, so we're hyper-concerned about it. But as far as, like, to me, if it's ensuring quality, as well as the value-added practice happening in the place where you want to create wealth and return wealth to, then it's not necessarily wasteful in the way that we think it is. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. I know that's a complicated and nuanced conversation without us getting into slamming the GI, uh, or I should say slamming the resistance to the GI. Um, yeah, yeah. What do you think? What about that GI? Well, I mean, I think uh, Jamaica should go forward, and I think Barbados should go forward, as the majority of distilleries in Barbados want it to. Yeah. All except for one, yeah. Well, and the majority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the Barbadian owned and operated ones, which is important to me. Um, yeah. Um, cool. You know, and like, <laughs> it's funny because, uh, you know, I do buy a lot of independently bottled rums, although these days less and less because I mostly want to buy stuff that's aged at least on the island where it's made. Mm -hmm. um, 
and a lot of independent bottlers don't offer that. But, you know, some people I really like at some independent bottlers are like, oh, we came out with this awesome Foursquare. And it's like, you know, I love you guys, but like, why would I buy Foursquare from you when I could buy it from Foursquare? Yeah. And it's like aged at Foursquare. Yeah. And I think independent or hopefully dependent bottlers, meaning they've got a really healthy relationship with the producer. It's interesting that, you know, they're not the people who are against the GI. That's right. Uh, they're, they're about creating their own thing and their own expression and saying on the bottle, we sought out this rare expression and then we did this to it. And that's our role in creating it. That's different. And yeah, I'm with you. I really love grower producer. So like in wine, you would call it like grower producer, uh, right. which obviously in rum is different. It's like um, producer bottled. I, I love those expressions. And, you know, so much of the rum market does remind me of, of like Burgundy in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where it used to be that small producers in these sort of more in Burgundy, for example, more rural areas that didn't have the financial investments of a lot of the big cities, they had to sell to these larger companies who could blend and bottle their stuff for them. And as they were able to capture more of the income from their quality of their work, like they went on to bottle it themselves because for what people I think don't understand in a lot of this discussion is there's the raw material work of like creating the rum, which is severely undervalued and not, it doesn't create the same profit as aging and bottling. And that's where a lot of the profit is made. And so when you offshore those operations, like you take that value adding and that profit and that skill set off the island. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's a big problem in cognac too. And this is why I don't drink very much cognac unless it is, you know, producer bottled cognac. Um, exactly. In that case, you know, Armagnac is a lot better about it. And most mainstream Armagnac is still, a lot of it still is producer bottled. Um, yeah. I think there's a big misconception in cognac that those vineyards next to that house made that cognac and like the bulk buying and selling of pre-fermented wine or the bulk buying and selling of pre-made spirit or even aged spirit. I, I think people have very little understanding of how that functions in cognac. Yeah. I, I mean, I had no idea until I started really getting into studying spirits and like, I'm sure the average consumer has zero idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at Germain Robin, like they didn't ferment anything. We brought in all pre-made wine uh, mm. and distilled it off. And one of the big reasons I think I was probably brought into operations is they were going to start distilling a whiskey. And I, I was the person with the most experience at the company with fermentation. And I was like 23 years old and like, you know, had made a few batches of things at, at a home. Um, but I knew the chemistry of it uh, and the considerations of it. Um, because yeah. Start, start distilling Arag in your backyard, Maggie. <laughs> If I, I have to hold a federal, like, I, I really want to be sure I take care of privateers so I can't do, like, a federal crime of illegal distilling. But um, I do feel like we should get someday. What if it's in your husband's name? <laughs> no, he owns the still, not me. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's a perfume. We make delicious perfume. Um, no, I think we could register, like, an experimental still at privateer for some fun side stuff. Yeah. When when a day comes that we have like like you said like that time and that energy and ability to invest in fun projects again, um, I think that could be something really fun because, yeah, I mean I've had some beautiful ones. I f- I feel like you know 
circling back to the start of our conversation, I feel like what's available in the U.S., like there's some good ones, but I feel like there's such a huge variety available and there's so many beautiful ones. And, you know, in the U.S., that might not be the first one you can go out and buy or you recognize. Definitely not. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and, you know, this is something that I'm trying to do. Like for me at this point, I drink neat spirits a lot more than cocktails. Um, once upon a time that may not have been true but like you know a really well-made spirit like doesn't need anything added to it like yeah you could enhance it you know with the right ingredients and like you could create an absolutely delicious cocktail but like a well-made spirit doesn't need that and you know i'm trying not just with rum but i'm trying to you know get some really good brandy and really good agave stuff as well and it's like you know, if you think rum is hard, forget brandy. Like, nobody drinks brandy. <laughs> but, oh. You know, you know. Uh, having worked at Jermaine Robin and trying to sell brandy in the uh, market I, I, in I 2009. Uh, not, but I'm sure you know all about that. When I came into rum and people were like, rum is really hard. I'm like, move aside. Like, I just spent a year trying to convince people to try brandy. So... <laughs> Um, and brandy's so expensive and difficult no, it's to make. Not. I don't think so. Well, like it's so, so grapes are only ripe four months a year and they're very fragile or fruit period is very fragile. It's very easy to get infected. You have to handle it with so much care. You can only make so much of it in one year. What you can make is it period. Yeah. You can't make any more or less. Like those are the grapes that are ripe. Um, and that's what came ripe under your contract. So that's what you're buying. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's like, it's, it's really wild how that can, I, I'm amazed at some, like Laird's is a steal when you get the apple brandy. Oh yeah. It is a steal. I love Lisa. She's incredible. Um, and yeah, like it's such a steal, but, uh, but brandy is like, as far as actually making it very expensive compared I'm to molasses. I have no doubt. Yeah. Molasses I can just order. It shows up, I pump it into a tank when I want to use it, I'm done. Um, and there's no waste, the waste, the solid waste from grape skins and seeds and stems and pears, seeds and stems and apples and it's wild. And cellaring apples, I don't know, if, like the, the cold cellaring of apples pre-pressing and making the brandy, like that's a whole other operation you're like renting space for and then you're wrapping them in paper and oh yeah. It's a whole thing that I'm like, I turn on the switch and molasses comes in. <laughs> like, this is amazing. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, sorry, I totally interrupted you on a tangent. But like, yeah, brandy is hard to sell. I can't imagine how hard a rock would be to sell. Well, I think it's easy because people are like, have a sentimental value attached to it. Like anybody who is Middle Eastern or has lived or spent time in the Middle East, like has and, and drinks because you know obviously there's plenty of people who don't but they know what it is and they like it and like it's become like for me for example i can't go out to one of these like big lebanese lunches and not have arag. like I'm, i've conditioned it i'm conditioned such that like if i eat that kind of food i have to have this drink yeah so for a lot of people like that's not a hard sell like for the people who are interested in it i'll explain what it is and of course the usual question is do you like the taste of anise what's that do you like the taste of licorice no then you're not gonna like this um but 
that's easier whereas you know brandy that is not one of the big four cognacs is a much much harder sell because nobody knows about it that's true and like you said, the cultural awareness is pretty broad in the U.S. There's a large community that has a familiarity with the rock, and there's not nearly that same breadth of this is just a part of my meal That's in the right. U.S. for brandy. Um, it's like a I heard it once described as like a meal without rock is like a salad without dressing. Like why? Like what? It's not done yet. This isn't <laughs> this isn't how you serve food. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's also that whole segment of people that are like, oh, well, Lebanon has such a great wine industry. You have Lebanese wine with your food. It's like, yeah, you can, but come on. Yeah. How do you drink it when you drink it at meals? With water and ice. So I drink it the traditional way. So nobody ever drinks it neat. People are like, can I have a shot of Arag? I'm like, here's your Arag with water and ice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is like, okay, so it's not crazy, crazy strong. I mean, it's like usually 50 to 53% which you know in the rum world is like breakfast but <laughs> my rum world that's breakfast i feel like we need to name a distiller's drawer rum now breakfast rum i'm writing this down uh in honor of this <laughs> in honor of your comment yes it's down it's on paperwork the meat is such an intense experience i don't know if it's because of like all the uncut like anise oil in it or what like taking shots of egg is fucking fierce um, it, it like stirs you like it gets your chi going or something i yeah, don't know what it is but it's just like Although it's also very interesting because like if you approach them very very carefully with like lots of air and tiny sips you can then distinguish the differences between the various producers which is kind of fun um but like it takes a lot of care and like i think a very you know a decently trained palate do that because normally when you drink them with just water and ice like a lot of those differences are eroded away or or, you know diluted away as it may be um but yeah yeah, usually drunk like traditionally the really there's like two 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 ratios one is half and half and one is one third and two thirds so one third out of two thirds water and then you always add the ice at the end because if you add the ice at the beginning it can cause the, so the water, you know, it's just like absinthe or pastis or ouzo or whatever, you know, you add the water and it brings the dissolved anise oil out of solution and into suspension and thus it like refracts white light or something like that, um, which is why it looks white. Uh, but when you add ice directly to it, it causes the oils to solidify and almost it looks like your liquid has curdled. Um, yeah which is not very nice. So you always add water and then ice. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's, yes. I love the way that that white arak looks in the glass. I, mm-hmm. I think it looks so, it just, it, it's just like an aesthetics thing. Like it just looks gorgeous. It's like when it's I get a perfectly cool. clear cocktail like someone yeah. once made one with like our rum and some vermouth and like some other things. And it's like, it just looks good. Um, yeah. It's not like a, like some people are like, it looks weird and milky. I'm like, no, it's like a beautiful, like when you just see like a great watch or a great piece of clothing, like it just looks good. Like it looks crisp. It looks delicious. It tastes amazing. 
I get like when I'm tasting it, because um, I'm such like a distiller brain, I'm looking like a lot of the differences I will notice aside from obviously like how anise was added at what stage and what character it gives, because um, that kind of changes a little bit um, how it shows. Uh, I am always looking for like cuts and how like how is the under spirit expressing itself and mm -hmm. yeah precisely precisely um and so for example like we have two like top tier adults of the bar which are also bloody cheap i mean they're like 17 dollars a bottle for us um but you know they're considered two of the best in lebanon and one of them underneath the anise is like unmistakably grape brandy like you can just taste like you know grapes and raisins and other like dried fruit and stuff like that and it's like rich and the other one is so like green and vegetal and you know ostensibly that's you know that's also made from wine too but like something about it, it is just entirely different like they're polar opposites like they're both very high quality but like they're so different when when like really analyzed closely it's really fascinating very cool uh, thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day i know how busy you are i know how much you're working and I'm just so thankful to get this time to like learn so much from you and catch up and just hear how you are and uh, hear your voice instead of just a million texts of Fred photos and spaghetti and <laughs> shadow photos. Uh, shout out, shadow. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I really thank you. Thank it. you. It was a great pleasure and great honor. Oh, and I want to come see you soon. You're like, you're very top of the list. Like, it seems like a doable and much desired experience at a point when it is safe again. Um, yeah, well, when it's safe again, I want to actually start thinking about a uh, DC rum fest. Yeah, uh, that would be amazing because we yeah. can, like you said, we can have anything there. Um, yeah, it's true. It's the place to have it and there is the off season politically where there's all these spaces to have events, but no one from politics is there or using them. I'm thinking start small and do it at the great zone. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's how, that's how to do it well, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll talk about how special it will be like the first tales, uh, but the new order of things, the, the first green zone DC rum fest. Oh, well, stay safe. Much love to you and your crew and your whole Thank family you. and Shadow. Uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Chris. As usual, an amazing discussion. I've learned so much. There's so much more I want to ask you. Um, I can't wait to see you out in the world again. So, Thank you all for spending your time with us today. I really hope you enjoyed my quick chat with Kate Perry and my longer discussion with Chris. Uh, we've got more technical and detailed podcasts coming up for you, and you can find us at Privateer Rum on Instagram, Privateer Rum on Facebook, and my personal handle is at Half Pint Maggie. Please join us next time. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs>